I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. There's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight. Find your next fishing trip made easy on fishingbooker.com and experience the magic of the Sunshine State or any other destination on your fishing bucket list. Book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids. With over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast, your home for deer hunting news, stories, and strategies. And now, your host, Mark Kenyon. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast. I'm your host, Mark Kenyon, and this is episode number 109. Today in the show, it's just me and Dan, and we're going to catch up a bit on our current whitetail projects and discuss the tricky topic of technology and hunting. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast brought to you by Sitka Gear. And today it's just me and my co-host Dan Johnson. And we're going to be catching up on some of our current whitetail related projects. And uh, maybe a couple other interesting rabbit holes if we have time. I don't know. We'll we'll see where things take us. But it's going to be casual. It's going to be fun. So uh, how you been Dan? It's been a while since we've been able to just the two of us get on and talk. Yeah, I know, I know. Like, how casual are we going today? Like, would you feel comfortable if I took my shorts off? Um, or not that casual? Yeah, I guess you you can't really see me. No, I can't see you. But now that you're starting to describe it, now I'm. It's like <laughs> it's forcing like a horrible image on me, and that's the part that I'm not so comfortable with. Okay, <laughs> so, I'll keep them on. I'll so, keep this is you know we got to be professional. Yeah, you know you don't need you don't need to wear them. Just don't tell me about it. How about that? Okay. Okay. Hey, I'll know that for next time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. To be honest, I'm not sure I've always worn shorts when we've recorded in the past. So uh, think about that next time you're listening to an archived episode. <laughs> mm. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> so, so we are we are going to be talking about deer hunting today, folks. So don't worry, we're not just talking about weird stuff. But <laughs> <laughs> weird stuff. Yeah. But but real quick, Lodan, what's new? I feel like there's been some some exciting new things happening with you since we've chatted last, right? But actually, before Dan answers that, let's take a quick break now before we dive too deep into this conversation for our Sitka story of the day. And today, we've got a quick anecdote from Ben Harshine, the founder of Huntera Maps and also an avid user of Sitka Gear products. And a while back while hunting Kansas, Ben had a close encounter with a legendary buck. And that encounter and animal was so impressive that Ben actually decided to let him pass. I'll let Ben explain exactly why he did that. 
Yeah, so I kind of went through some changes pretty quick. Um, when I first caught a glimpse of him, I knew he was a shooter right away. And then as he came in, I started to realize, okay, this is Tank. And, and I, I've, I'm well aware of Tank. I mean, I've seen um, all the sheds that Matt's gotten from him over the years. Um, I've seen hundreds of trail cam pictures of this dude. And, and uh, But as he got closer, um, man, he just really took over the wheel, to be honest with you. It was like he... It almost changed, you know, my mindset um, with with really what was going to happen. And uh, I don't know, he just kind of dominated the scene. And we just literally sat there for 20 minutes with the camera rolling and our, our jaws basically hitting the platform of our tree stands. I mean, just awesome uh, whitetail footage and him snort wheezing. And he was just so worked up with throwing, you know, he's, he's pawing at the, at the ground. It was like he had a, a spade on the end of his foot. He was throwing so much dirt. So it was just, I, I was just in awe of this amazing white tail. And, you know, I decided right there, I'm not going to kill this deer. I'm going to, I'm going to let him go and, and, uh, uh, let the quest continue. I really feel like Matt should be the one that takes him. And he definitely gave me the green light too, but you know, I, I don't know. I, I hunt for reasons, um, I'm for a lot of reasons, uh, you know, Facebook likes and, 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 uh, just putting big deer on the wall is, is not necessarily a measurement of success to me. And I really go out there and try to hunt for, um, these experiences as well. I mean, no doubt I like to kill big deer, but at the same time, it's, um, the memories you can make with, with people in the field, um, you know, lifelong brotherhoods with, uh, situations like that Matt and I had in the tree. So, um, you know, those types of encounters with, with the whitetail is, is really what, what drives me. And I, I, I think that I've got a trail cam photo of, of Tank hanging on my wall um, in the office, and that's, that's a pretty awesome trophy to me. That right there to me, that's what it's all about. So on this hunt, Ben was wearing a Fanatic hoodie and the Celsius jacket. If you'd like to learn more about Sitka Gear, you can visit SitkaGear.com. And now let's get back to the show. And Dan, tell us what is new. Dude, not really. Um, to be honest with you, I, I went out. The only thing I've really done. Oh, wait, maybe some stuff has gone down. I had a I had a trail camera day where I went out and I set up like seven trail cameras in mineral um, this past Friday or Saturday. I think it was Friday. I had another trail camera day where I went out to a different piece of property and hung my final three trail cameras up. And, uh, I only have one more trail camera to hang up and, um, and then it, you know, then you got a couple more, uh, weeks until I got to check them and, uh, see what's, uh, see what's out there. So talk, let's talk about trail cameras really quick. Um, I know you've been testing out some new cameras from Exodus, which is a relatively new company. I have one. I haven't actually been able to put it out yet. That's horrible to say, but I've had it sitting and I just haven't put it out yet. What uh, What are your thoughts on that camera so far? Yeah, uh, it's a very good camera. It's pretty cool, um, like Maven Optics and like QU and some other direct-to-consumer companies. You know, this I don't want this to sound like commercial or anything, but it's pretty cool because you're getting kind of a higher end trail camera for a lower price because they don't sell theirs at like Cabela's or Bass Pro Shop or in stores or anything like that. So you're actually getting uh, you're getting a better camera for a lower dollar amount, if that makes sense. 
Right. Yeah, no, I, I love that about with, uh, you know, for example, like you mentioned with the optics with Maven, they can put out a set of binoculars or a spotting scope, their new spotting scope they launched for, you know, like significantly less money than some of the other top line optics companies, but same yeah. quality, just because like you said, they, they don't have to have that upcharge that a retailer put on there. So right. from a business standpoint, especially now with the way that things are going with internet shopping, that's, that's a very viable business model that is, is good for the consumer, right? It's good for us, the people trying to buy them. So, oh, yeah, especially when you're safe, when you're saving 50, up to 50% on some items. Yeah. I think we're going to see more and more companies go that route as, you know, more and more shopping is done directly. So. Yeah, uh, there's a, a brand of store in Iowa called Hy-Vee, and you can go online, select your groceries, and they will deliver it to your house. You don't even know, need to go to the grocery store anymore. Isn't that crazy? Yeah, I know there's yeah. some other places by us that do that too. It's changing times, man. New yeah. world. Times, they are changing. Yeah, now, now, what about here? Speaking of changes, isn't there some news in your personal life? Like, we haven't even talked about this in a while. <laughs> house? Oh, house yeah fell through <laughs> it did yeah. oh no see we well, really haven't talked about this because i didn't know yeah. that so so what happened was you know this acreage came up for sale and uh it wasn't a very big acreage but it was out in the country it was an old barn that was converted into a house just like kind of a perfect country setting you know you couldn't see it from the road nice trees just kind of an awesome place i just imagined me raising my kids there and uh, we put an offer in on it. They were uh, they accepted it, and uh, we were putting our ha- house on the market. And the day that we were bait, I had a feeling we were going to get an accepted offer on our house. They said that they accepted another offer because uh, the sale of our uh, that sale was contingent on the sale of our house. So because of that, then they were still able to accept um, other offers and they accepted another offer and uh, yeah, it wasn't, uh, didn't go through. That's brutal. That's all right. That's, That's all right. Bummer. Now I, I can look at this a couple different ways. I can say, yeah, I didn't get the, the, you know, the acreage that I wanted, but now I might be able to weasel in a, you know, maybe a Western hunt. Ah, so this, this is money savings, right? Right. It's all about, you know, it's all about that zero. You know, it's like if you're, if you're above the zero, you can do good things, you know, extra things. If you're below the zero, you can't do, you know, you can't do so many fun things because that, uh, that house would have been, you know, a higher monthly mortgage. And then, you know, the, all the boring talk and you can't spend as much money on, you know, the fun stuff. Yeah, there is something to be said about avoiding being like house poor. You know, we put a bunch right. of money in a house and you, you have less dispos- disposable, you know, income to, to play with. It's kind of nice to, you know, while it may not be the responsible thing, it's kind of nice to have money to do fun things with. Right. I think, but I, I think those people who are living in the tiny houses, they really know what they're doing. I, I want to live, I want to live in a tiny house, Mark. Dude, I'll tell you what, there is a tiny house on a trailer sitting on a national forest road that's been there since last summer we were back there we drove past us saw this really cool little tiny house sitting on a trailer like not being it's not like on a lot it's literally just kind of like someone pulled off the side of the road because they got a flat tire they took the trailer off and then kept driving and it was there last year and we came back this summer drove past it again it's there we stopped we looked at it i looked in the place it's super cool 
really I think it's brand new. Like it's not completely finished, but it's like ninety percent finished, I'd say. And it's just sitting there. Like anyone could just pull up to it and pop it on their trailer. And obviously that's probably not the right thing to do, but it's been there for a year and a half. Maybe there's squatters rights or something. <laughs> if you uh, yeah, want I don't it. know what I don't know what the what the rule would be, because it's technically not a house. I I mean, do you have to be, Oh geez, we're, this is not uh, this is this is not a <laughs> podcast about you know tiny houses, but I, I want to know a whole bunch more things about them. Maybe we should think about getting expanding and start talking about you know uh, you know squatters' rights and tiny houses and where we can put them. Can we put them on a national forest road? Can yeah. we? You know, it's funny. Know. It's it's funny you mention that because I was actually going to announce this next week. But I'll share today. The Wired to Tiny House podcast <laughs> will be coming to you. <laughs> big announcement. Yeah, this is the, this is the pivot. The, the big move in my business career is going to be focusing on tiny homes. <laughs> Not really. But any more trail camera news for you? Have you gotten any good bucks on camera yet? Any new deer that you've identified? Well, I... I I think we talked about the one I called Dork, yes. the buck I called Dork. We talked about him, uh, and since then, the only thing that I there's one tra- trail camera. It's close to home. I'm able to check it on a regular basis. Uh, that buck is you know, the buck where I missed the booner, and then I had another big mature buck that was um, that I'd seen from the stand. Uh, it must not be a property where, that holds their summer pattern because only does. Uh, on this one trail camera that I've been checking. And uh, other than that, I haven't had an ch- opportunity to check any more trail cameras, which is kind of a good and a bad thing, you know? Yeah, it, it is nice to have uh, an excuse for not overly pressuring your trail camera locations. Because if it's right close to your home, it's very tempting to go do it all the time, right? That's right. That's the one silver lining of me being like 2,000 miles away from my trail cameras <laughs> is that I definitely know I'm not checking them too much. Which which sucks, man. Because I always want to do I always want to do a one week after I set them up initially to make sure they're working properly, and then come back because and then you know so then I I know they're working and then I can have a little bit more confidence. But if I come back and I have some kind of user error on some of my uh, trail cameras or, or some of my older trail cameras that I have. Uh, you know, they're, they're getting older. They're, you know, five, six, seven years old. Um, they, they don't work as well as my new ones do. So if I come back and there's zero pictures after two or after a month and a half, that's when I like look like a crazy person in the woods, like punching air and kicking trees and shit like that, because I, I get so pissed off. That's like my number one thing about deer hunting that gets me pissed. Oh, man. I mean, if you want to see a grown man cry <laughs> right there, that'll just about do it. I mean, I've had a couple times where, like, either, you know, some type of malfunction or once my buddy forgot to turn the camera on and then we left for a month. I mean, stuff like that will just break your heart because you look forward to those pictures so much. Like, right now, I know I've got two or three cameras soaking in Ohio that have been there since May. And when I go check them in August, you know, I'm going to be sitting there hoping for four months of pictures. And if something happened, I will just blow a gasket. I mean, that's right. so, so depressing, which is the one nice thing about the cellular cameras, the ones that can send you pictures as you go because you can you know, keep tabs on it and know whether or not it's working, which is, I don't know, i got to buy one of those just to try it out because for this long-distance stuff, that would just help so much. 
right? And I, I have one of those. Uh, and unfortunately, the farms that I want to have it on, you know, because you, you think about it, you want a trail camera that has that capability to be further away so you can't, so you don't have to go and check it. Now, the, the crappy thing about it is that farm doesn't have good wireless connection. So now it, all it is is just another regular trail camera. Right. Yeah, it defeats the whole purpose of the extra couple hundred bucks you spent on the camera, right? <laughs> Amen. Yeah. You know, these these wireless trail cameras, they kind of pose a conundrum. I'm kind of curious about your thoughts on this, Dan. Because um, we did this, uh, we did a survey with the National Deer Alliance about it. And there are some potential moral or ethical, I guess, ethical questions about using those. So what do you think about a situation where someone has one of these wireless cellular trail cameras set up and they see a picture pop up on their phone of a big buck that just passed their tree stand and they happen to live by their property or something like that. And they know that deer literally just passed, passed by their stand and so they grab their bow and run back to the tree stand because they know that deer was there. Do you have any concerns about that type of use of technology? So the only issue with it is the time, right? Because if you're, you have a, another trail camera that you check, let's say, once a day or once a week or once a month, and it show, it's giving you – it's giving you the same information. It's just that it's cutting down on the time frame from one day or two days to instantly, right? So yeah. it's it's a matter of time. Now, you're able to make decisions based off that time frame on whether or not that deer is will be in the area. On let's say for me, if if I if I get a if I get a picture two or three days out and a, there's a buck on it. I'm going to look back and do all these things where, okay, the wind is out of here. I need to access the stand from here and, you know, do all those things. So the next time that that scenario lines up, I know I need to be in that tree stand. Now with, with, with instantly, not only are you able to potentially go to that tree stand, but you're also able to, uh, go to a different tree stand, maybe further down the trail or in a, a you know, a direction where you may have got another trail camera that gets him, you know, at, at a food source. So, you know, he's going in a certain direction. The bad part about it is too, you could, it could, it could ruin your hunt too, because you see him in the area. Oh God, I got to get in there. And then you, you push him out, you bump him. Right. Yeah. I mean, there's definitely, it's not a sure thing. That's for sure. I mean, but yeah. do you think that's, is that, is that too far? I mean, would you do that? Would you would you be okay in that situation? Would you feel okay about you know the ethics of that type of hunting if you got a picture and went right there ten minutes later because you knew that deer was in the area? Is that within what you feel is acceptable use of technology as a deer hunter? Man, that's tough because there's guys out there, and I can't help but agree with them in a way. Whatever happened to woodsmanship? Right. You know, guys were killing big bucks way before all this technology. And all this, and we all know that technology makes hunting easier. So it's like, what are we, do we really need it? Do we want it? I mean, I think it's, it's cool technology. The thing about it is I would have it on a property where I 
I couldn't instantly access that property anyway. I would have to wait a day or two or wait till my vacation or, you know, there would be very limited times where I could use it, like use it like that. But it, it, it does like the whole thing with uh, drones and is drones an acceptable form using drones to find game? Is that acceptable or is that ethical? It's it's tough, man, because everybody has their different opinions. Yeah, that, that's the thing, is I feel like with all these different forms of technology, you have different, everyone draws their line in the sand somewhere different. And the tricky thing is, what's the difference between an ethical question where we each draw our own line versus when the government or the game and fish agency has to draw that line, you know, and who's right and who's wrong, or is this just a differing opinion, or is it more of just a style of hunting, or, you know, I mean, these it gets really tricky, and you get people that you're really, really fired up about it, whether it be wireless trail cameras or drones or crossbows versus longbows versus compound bows or, you know, using scent control, such and such, or ozonics, or using, you know, there's all sorts of different types of technology out there, and there's all sorts of different opinions on what's right and what's not, and it's a tricky one. I mean, it's really hard to say. You can't say who's right or wrong on a lot of these things, I think, because it it just does come down to, you know, how you use it, what you're trying to get out of the, you know, circumstances, uh, you know, if it is legal, of course, if it follows the basic guidelines of, of legal taking of game. But, uh, man, I feel like this wireless trial camera one is one that, you know, because trial cameras are so entrenched in like the hunting culture now over the past 15 years, there's, you know, it's just not too many questions about it. And I would love to use a wireless trial camera and try it out. I think it's, it's a great tool, especially like in the cases that we were talking about where you're far away from your property and, you know, can't check those often, but that, specific situation you know using real-time surveillance that raises some questions a little bit for me just for me personally nothing against anyone else who wants to do it again I think this is one of those personal lines in the sand but I mean how far until well already I mean there are real-time cameras out there you know like Lee and Tiffany have got a real-time camera on one of their feeders out on some property that you can just sit online and watch deer on there all day what's keeping them or anyone from keeping a live streaming camera from behind their house. And whenever the big buck is out there, they walk out behind the house with their gun and shoot him. Is that hunting? Right. And that's, and that's the, that's the question that I've asked myself on because I've heard rumblings with, um, at a ATA show, you know, you're at the bars and, and, uh, everybody's chit chatting and, and, you know, gossiping and all, all this crap that goes on. You, you hear about a guy who has, uh, basically security cameras in his timber and on his food plots that relay back to a central hub that he is able to, now it's not technically, it's not a high fenced area, but it shows uh, real time images of the, uh, of their food plots. And they know that when a buck decides to come out, they have to go, they, they, they can go out there and potentially harvest this animal. And, uh, granted, you still got to shoot it. But at what point is that different than high fence hunting? You know what I mean? The, it, you're still – you know a deer is there. It I don't know. It just – there are things out there that 
<laughs> just like Democrats and Republicans, Chevy versus Ford. There's there's so many different things, and you gotta you gotta watch where you step because as hunters, we're supposed you know we have to unite as opposed to being I don't know. You know what I mean? I do know what you mean. Um, and I want to add to that, but I want to take a quick step back and make sure that I wasn't saying that I think Lee and Tiffany are using their live streaming cameras to hunt. Oh, yeah, yeah. Just to clarify anyone who thought I was like accusing them, I'm not accusing them of that at all. Um, that said, to your point about all this stuff, um, like you said, it's it, it can be tricky, and there is no right or wrong answer in a lot of these cases, but I think that it's important for us to be thinking about these things and to talk about these things. And here, I can't remember if, if we've talked about this on this show or not. Um, we probably have, but I, I think to your point, right? There's this belief that we need to unite as hunters, which I agree. There's a lot of outside factors and people and groups that want to tear hunters apart and tear away our rights and stuff like that. So I really think that we shouldn't be bickering over petty things and we shouldn't be attacking each other about different things, et cetera, et cetera. At the same time though, and you tell me if you disagree with this, Dan, but at the same time, I think is it also important for us to still have internal dialogue within our hunting community about where do we draw these lines about what is acceptable and to some degree, um, in a positive manner, police our own selves because if the hunting community starts just being okay with unethical behavior that from the outside is very obviously unethical, we're going to start getting our rights taken away whether we want them or not because as soon as we start doing some bad shit, we're going to start losing the privilege that is hunting. So I think it's better for us to internally police ourselves and say, hey, you know what, maybe we really should be careful about not doing X or being careful not to portray ourselves as, you know, whatever this thing is because that, you know, is going to hurt the larger thing we're doing here. You know, if you've got someone who's poking holes in the boat, are you going to say, well, no, you're on the boat with me, so we're just going to let you float along until we all sink? Or are you going to tell the person poking holes to stop doing that dumb stuff so that we'll keep on floating? I think there's there's a happy medium between the two where we stay together as a, as a core group of hunters, but we also are okay with the fact that, yeah, we need to police ourselves, we need to talk about some of these things, and we need to figure out what is the right direction moving forward collectively so that we can all still continue to do this and you know enjoy this hunting heritage that we have. Um, I don't know, does that make sense? It make it definitely makes sense. And we you know, when when we have that conversation to uh to, when that conversation happens, we have to know that people don't agree with us. So a lot of times what happens is people instantly go into a defense mode and then they don't want to talk about it. All they want to do is start blaming and blaming other groups and defending themselves instead of realizing that hey a converse some kind of conversation has to be had we have to have open minds and we have to you know in regards i'll just say that you know the the high fence hunting you know with the potential for disease outbreak or the you know is high fence hunting you know considered ethical that kind of stuff uh, you know high i know i know guys who are high fence hunter outfitters they're they're genuinely good people who, you know, raise their families just like we raise our families, you know. So not necessarily here to defend that, but they have a right to do that because it's legal. You know what I mean? And I think to that point or any point, I think um, 
it's like how you approach a situation like that. Exactly. exactly. So let's say in the case of high fence hunting, like we've talked about this before, I personally have some very serious concerns about a, the disease issues that a lot of, you know, there's a lot of evidence pointing to the fact that some of these facilities are facilitating the transfer of diseases like CWD at a greater rate than would be happening otherwise. So that's a big concern. And then B, the ethics, the ethical standpoint or questions about how some of these places are operated and what they're considering hunting. And then the impact that has on the outside community, the non-hunting public who sees that, sees people calling that hunting and then attributes that behavior to all of us, which then could potentially hurt the future of all hunters, whether it be high fence, no fence, public land, private land, etc. So, so those are my concerns about it. And so because I have concerns and I have an opinion, right, I'm going to engage in discussions with people and, you know, maybe lobby for certain types of things to address those concerns. But to your point, right, I'm not going to demonize the actual person, right? I mean, they have a right to do something. They have a right to, you know, participate in something differently than the way I want to do it. And that's okay. You know, we're all entitled to our own way of enjoying nature or our own means of making a living, whatever it might be. I might not necessarily care for it, but that doesn't mean that, you know, we have to call him a son of a bitch and, you know, whatever, yeah. be nasty about it. So I think there's, with all these things, whether it be politics, which is very, you know, timely these days with the stuff going on, or technology and hunting, or different modes of hunting, or different ways of going about it, we're going to have our differences. We can share our opinions on those differences. We can disagree. We can suggest different things, but let's not attack each other, you know? Right. Right. I had a I had a conversation with a guy a while back about bear hunting and baiting. And I was under, you know, unless you're actually doing it, you don't know. I never I've never bear hunted. And I had a conversation with a guy who lives up in Canada and he was talking about uh um baiting bear. And I just when I I wanted to get him on my podcast because I wanted to know what it was like without having to do it. So what better way to talk, you know, find out than have actually having someone that's actually does it. So anyway, he's, he's telling me that the, the baiting process isn't just going out the couple of days before the hunt and throwing out a whole bunch of, you know, fish or, or, um, beaver carcasses or bread or gravy or whatever it takes hundreds of pounds of food every week for several weeks to establish a site that the bears are going to come to. to so it actually takes a lot of time, energy, money, effort to to do that, to get to the point where these bears are coming to that. And it kind of opened my eyes a little bit that, hey, this is, in a way, it's kind of hard work. Right, right. I mean, there's so many examples of that too. Right. Like uh, people talking about baiting versus food plotting versus, you know, not using any one of the above. Right. And, you know, we each have our own opinions on that kind of stuff. And I guess there's a lot of instances where it's like you can't judge it till you've done it. Right. And also, you know, we have different goals in what we're trying to do and different parts of the experience that we value. Um, so, yeah, I mean, kind of, you know, I, I never have been too intrigued with the idea of bow hunting or, or hunting bears over bait because that just didn't seem like the experience I would want on a bear hunt. But at mm -hmm. the same time, who am I to judge someone else for doing that? Nothing wrong with that, you know. Right. And um, 
I think you make a great point that until you actually learn more about it or do it, you, you sh- probably shouldn't pass too much judgment. Um, there's a story that Steve Rinello always talks. He, he's mentioned a number of different times. I don't know if you've ever heard him share the story, but he talks. Um, I'm going to steal his story right now. Um, <laughs> he talks about this conversation he had with a friend. I guess he was he was deer hunting down in I don't know, some southeastern state, Georgia or something, and he was telling his buddy while they're sitting in this big, like elevated box blind. It was like a condo blind with recliners and windows and all sorts of fancy stuff in there. And they're sitting in this big thing, looking down like big spoked lines of food plot coming out from the blind they're sit they're sitting up in. You know, they've got a heater in there and stuff. And while they're sitting in there, Steve is telling his friend about how he's going on a mountain lion hunt with dogs. And all the intricacy and the the work that goes into training dogs to track, you know, dry land, mountain lions and all this stuff. And his friend is like, I don't know about you, but that doesn't really sound like hunting to me. Like <laughs> he's like, I just, that doesn't sound like very, like you're really hunting, just, just running dogs. And, um, you know, that's the, the irony of situations like that is he can be sitting in a condo looking over, you know, this perfectly manicured deer killing machine little plot. And then he's criticizing someone else for not really being a hunter. And I think that that's, that's a good example of something that probably happens a lot every day. We all kind of get into our own little world and, and it's easy, right, to, to judge the way someone else does something. And I'm, I'm definitely guilty of it as, as much as anyone probably. So it's a good little reminder to, to kind of try to look at these types of things through, you know, with other perspectives, you know, and um, be open to other perspectives. Nothing against, you know, there's nothing wrong with having that debate and conversation, but to also be open to other ideas. Yeah? What's that? Fact. What other technology issues? Uh, now we're on this t- topic of technology. What about with drones? We, you brought that up. Do you think there's any way that drones should be allowed within the hunting world? My personal opinion is no. I mean, I mean, if you open the door to some of this stuff, it's just a Pandora's box of what could happen next. Like, What's stopping somebody from mounting a gun on a drone and shooting a deer yeah. from the their laptop or yeah. from their basement? You know what I mean? Yeah, no, I, exactly. I've thought about that too. Or what about, you know, um, a slightly more sporting version? What if they uh, shot a little dart with a GPS transponder onto the deer and then you could just track it on your phone? And then shoot him the next day when it's convenient for you. I mean, there's a lot of scary hypotheticals out there. And already, I don't know if I'm pretty sure this is a real thing. I'm like 99% sure I read this. Some number of years ago, there was like a high fence operation where you could buy a hunt, a virtual hunt, where there was a firearm attached to a computer and a webcam. And wherever you were at, let's say you lived in Michigan, you could go online, you bought your hunt, you'd go online, look at the deer that's in this cage or whatever on video camera and use your cursor to aim the gun and shoot it from your computer. So then do you, is the meat shipped to you or do you get the rack sent to you afterwards? Or, I mean, there's no difference between that and a video game then. Well, that's exactly what it was basically. I mean, I, I don't remember all the details. I'm like, yeah, again, I'm 99% sure I remember seeing this a handful of years ago. And I'm pretty sure it was made illegal right after that. Um, like they were trying to do that or they did do that. Um, and I'm glad it was out, outlawed. Um, but yeah, I mean, what, how, how is that hunting? How is that? I mean, that very clearly isn't as far as I'm concerned, but it raises that question. You know, we could keep going back to this. Where's the line in the sand? So if you pull the trigger from behind a camera, 
that's worse than if you pulled the trigger, you know, in person? Or was it because of the distance? Or is it because it was in a high fence? Or what makes it unethical? What makes it ethical? What, you know, there's just so many questions like that. In this case, I, th- I think it's very clearly something that's not okay. But you could see how other issues you could start figuring, you know, like with drones. Right. What about, could you use a drone the day before? Or what if I was using a drone just to film me walk to my tree stand, but not actually for deer? Uh, not actually looking for deer. I mean, you know, there, there are all these different well, things. Well, I mean, questions. if you're going to use it, I don't see an issue with drones. If you're going to use it for some kind of filming as far as, you know, B-roll type of stuff. But if if you're using a drone to push deer your direction, I don't know. I don't know if I like that. Yeah, I, I personally do not. And most, many states now are outlawing, are outlawing drones um, at least the use of them in relation to hunting, um, which, which personally I think is a good thing, but, uh, you know, with all, I tell things- you what I, what I will do is if I am hunting and all of a sudden, uh, like sitting in my tree stand or whatnot, and all of a sudden I see a, a drone creeping through the woods or, you know, I'd probably shoot an arrow at it. <laughs> I think that has happened with a gun and that guy got in big trouble. No, I think what happened was, there was a guy with a drone. I don't know if this is hunting related, but this drone drone operator was going over their fence and taking pictures of this dude's daughter sunbathing. And then the guy got out and he shot the tr- the the drone over because the, the drone wasn't technically on the other guy's property, taking pictures of his daughter, but uh, it was up above the neighbor's property. So the guy got a shotgun and, and blew it away. And then the guy <laughs> called the cops on him. Yeah. So I feel like there's been a number of circumstances like that. I think some anti hunters were trying to harass hunters with drones too. I think duck hunters. And I think of someone shot the drone out of the air too. Um, you ever, you know who, I don't know why I brought this up, but you ever uh, hear of a guy named Dan Blazarian? Oh, <laughs> yes. I think, is, that, is that his name? I follow him on Instagram. <laughs> yeah, I do too. I do too. I mean, any man probably should. Dude, he's a uh, wild man. <laughs> he is an absolute wild man. So I'm watching a YouTube video of about, you know, 20 drones in the air and he whips out like this giant machine gun and just blasts them all, all oh out of the, gosh. like him in about 20, obviously models, uh, blast them all out of the air. It's, it's pretty cool to watch. Like $20,000 just going up in exactly. the air and smoke. Gone. Ugh, yeah. He, he does some crazy stuff. That's for sure. I, uh. I don't know how the guy made all his money, but he's got a lot of money to spend, that's for sure. That's right. So drones. We agree there's some issues with drones. There's some questions about how we're using wireless trail cameras. Uh, what's some other controversial stuff we can talk about, Dan? <laughs> oh, geez, I <laughs> don't know. What else is on your mind? Uh, I don't know if there's not, you know, there's not too much stuff that's controversial that, uh, you know, obviously we've covered high fence. We've covered... You know, we talked about baiting drones, um, you know, the whole issue with dogs. That's a that's a huge traditional thing down in the south. Uh, um, party hunting. That's a thing here in Iowa where you can drive deer into, you know, pinch points and blast well, them. Not well that. Well, well, correct me if I'm wrong. But so you're talking about just like a, a deer drive. But right. isn't there also a thing in Iowa that is called party hunting where someone can shoot a deer and use somebody else's license for it? Well, basically what it is, and I'm not 100% accurate on this, but 
as long as there are certain number of ta- if, as long as there is a tag for every deer that gets shot, it doesn't matter if it's your tag or the other guy's tag. That's an interesting one. Yeah. Because I, I I know I've read some things about like what about with like a non-resident? What if there's a non? I wonder if that applies to non-residents. So, could I go out on a deer drive with you with a bunch of other gun hunters and I shoot a big buck even though I didn't draw a non-resident tag and you can put yours on it? Well, you would still have to have uh you would still have to have a hunting license, and I'm not a hundred percent sure as far as shotgun hunting is concerned. There are it's very it's easier i'll put it this way it's easier to get a shotgun tag in iowa obviously than it is a an archery tag yeah that is true i think you can get it almost every other every year other every other year in a lot of places right because i've i've looked into that a bit speaking of next year i'm coming back to iowa all right so are you going back to that same area I think so. I, okay. I like the area. It's got a lot of good deer, and I can get a tag there more often. I just have a hard time waiting four years to go right. once. Right. And you won't let me hunt any of your spots, so where am I going to go, Dan? That's right. That's right. Not a damn chance. <laughs> <laughs> I already share it with too many people. I know you do. Um, if I had, if I had a private, you know, private farm, you'd be more than welcome to shoot does. But I would. <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate that. Yeah, yeah. Oh man! Well, you know what? I want to talk about something totally different than what we've talked Let's about so it. far. Because I I want to share some exciting updates for me. I finally I have some whitetail updates. Oh yeah! Because I'm out here in Montana finally, and I'm going on a Montana whitetail hunt, and so I started scouting, which has been fun. So I've done well two types of scouting so far. First, I've done a lot of map scouting, so doing a bunch of work online trying to find spots that I can hunt, and then secondly, I've now done two velvet drives essentially at night or in the evening hours to go scout fields. So I thought I'd kind of walk through what I've done so far to start this process. And so I think it's going to be kind of an interesting story here as I, you know, I've never hunted out West before. I've never hunted an area like this is totally different as, you know, as you might imagine from where I've hunted in the past. So this is all new. Um, so, you know, like we've talked about, I kind of decided I wanted to hunt Montana on a whim because a, I knew I was potentially going to be spending some time out here in the summer. B, you know, I've heard a lot of good things about Montana in general for their whitetail population, and see, it's just like beautiful country. So it seemed like it'd be a very different, cool place to hunt. Um, so, you know, this whole process started by first, excuse me. Um, first, I wanted to try to figure out, you know, some different, you know, where whitetails might be in this kind of country. You know, there's lots of mountains around me and stuff. But what I found from talking to people and you know just from what I've heard in the past is that these whitetails congregate down in like the river bottoms. So they're not necessarily up in the mountains, you know, where a lot of people think of when you're hunting in Montana or something, but they're down low in the valleys, wherever big rivers come through, there's lots of trees and cover versus all the grasses and sagebrush and stuff. That's everything everywhere else. So I first started like trying to locate on maps. Okay. Where are the different big river valleys that run through this general region that I'm going to be in? And then I started looking at those maps and finding, okay, here's these corridors of, of river bottom and cover and trees and stuff. Now where are the where's the public land nearby? Because I'm gonna I'm gonna try to hunt public land. I'm not hundred percent sure if I'm gonna be able to do it because I'm also wanting to try to find some older bucks. Um, but I'm gonna try to find public land where I can kill a nice buck out here. So I started looking 
Uh, Montana's got a lot of nice resources online that outline like where all the different public lands are, whether it be like state forest or national forest or uh, private property that's opened up to hunting through their block management program. So pull up maps that showed all that stuff, compared it to the aerial maps, you know, online. And I found a couple different spots that are open to the public that are in this river bottom ground that looked pretty good. So last night and then like four or five nights ago, I went and did a drive by along this river in this area. And, um, I can report that I've had moderately good news. Um, seen a lot of deer, tons of whitetails, like lots. I feel good about that. Saw a lot of whitetails. I just haven't seen a ton of like good bucks. I've seen a couple that I think would be, could be shooters, but not a ton, not so much. I'm like, Ooh, yeah, definitely. This is the spot. Um, so I don't know. I'm like, I'm feeling okay about it. I've seen a lot of deer. So that's a good thing. I, the two properties that are open to the public and they're big sections. Um, there was a lot of deer on them. So that's a good thing. I just, you know, I don't, I haven't seen anything that makes me 100% confident that that's the spot I'm going to be able to kill, you know, a three-year-old or a four-year-old. So kind of where I'm going to go from here now is I'm probably going to take a couple more nights and do some more drive-bys to that area just to try to get a better idea. You know, kind of right now, I just want to figure out, are there some three or four-year-old bucks possibly in that area? If so, then I'm willing to commit probably and start scouting individual properties to try to learn. But it, I want to make sure that there's at least some deer in that general quality level before I invest a whole bunch of time there. So that's kind of where I'm at now. Um, I'm going to do some more drives, hopefully see some good bucks. Like I said, I saw one really pretty nice one last night, uh, but I did see, in addition to that, I saw a bunch of elk, I saw pronghorn, I saw mule deer, and I saw two moose. So it's fun driving. Nice. So my question to you is, as far as whitetails are concerned, what happens if you don't See, find that um, you've already made the commitment to going out there to hunt. What if you don't find that, uh, um, I guess, magical two, you know, three year old, four year old that you're looking for? Are you still going to go in with, you know, the most mature possible? Are you going to shoot from the hip? Are you going to be running trail cameras at all? So, trail cameras are, speaking of technology issues, trail cameras are not legal during the season in Montana. Um, at all. And I am not 100% sure. I think that they're legal in the off season, but I'm not 100% sure. So I brought a camera out just in case, but I have not gone to check the regulations to double check whether or not I can put it out or not. So if I get to the point that I, um, pick a spot, I think there is some decent bucks. And when I double check the regulations, if it is legal during the off season, I was going to put one out just to try to see what's in the area still. Um, but, you know, my game plan's two things. Number one, throughout the next, you know, three weeks that I'm out here, I'm going to keep scoping out this area, trying to find, like, a decent number of mature bucks to make me feel good about hunting there. But if I don't find that over the next couple of weeks, I'm probably going to go check out some different valleys, some different areas around here, and scope those out and see if there's another section that maybe just has a better quality of deer, better age structure. Um, but let's hypothetically say maybe I see a couple nice bucks over in this one spot I've been scouting, so I decide, okay, I'm going to hunt there, and I come back in September. Um, I am probably going to go into this with relatively low expectations, but still set some standards. So my goal is going to be a three-year-old. Um, and can you hear that train, by the way? I can hear that train. <laughs> I, I'm recording. I can't remember if we talked about this in this episode or last, but I'm recording in Sika Gears basement. 
right now. Right. So, right. you know, it's, it's a little different audio quality down here. <laughs> but um, I'm going to try to shoot for a three-year-old. So I don't need, like, a giant deer. I just want, like, a representative of the area that's a decent, nice buck. So, I mean, if there's, like, a 110 or 115-inch that looks like it's probably a three-year-old that comes by my stand... I'm going to shoot it because I think this is a pretty tough situation, you know, completely DIY, public land, never hunted this area. Um, if I could get a buck like that, I would be tickled. So, um, you know, on the other hand, though, if I get out here or if I start scouting the summer and I find like a bunch of big old deer and I'm out here when I start hunting and I'm seeing a lot of like nice bucks, I'm not going to be afraid to, you know, to be patient, too. Um, I've got, I think seven days, so I'm going to, you know, I'm going to judge it based on what we see. So, you know, if I'm seeing a lot of nice deer and a small three-year-old comes by on day one, then I probably would pass on it and wait. Cause, uh, you know, why end the hunt too early? So right. we, we're going to kind of play it by ear and it's going to be, I don't know, it's going to be very different. It's going to be interesting. Um, you know, I sure hope I can fill a tag and close the deal, but, uh, you know, I wouldn't be too surprised if I don't either. Cause it's, uh, it's definitely not a gimme. So I don't know. So you you said the numbers were good. I mean, you saw a lot of whitetails in these in these valleys that you're driving through. Yeah, I'd say I saw pretty. I mean, it wasn't like it's not like Iowa where you come across a field and you'd see like 30 deer in it. I at least right. I haven't not have not found that yet here. Um, right. But you know, I, I would say like consistently every field you'd pass by or every grassy section there'd be handful of whitetails there there'd be a two does there then you go 100 yards up and there's five does and you go you know another 50 100 yards and there's another doe and then there's three bucks and so i mean there's a good number of deer um but you know i I haven't seen you know um i don't know if you've ever seen some like the real tree monster buck tv shows or dvds where like bill jern or someone is hunting in like the milk river at some outfitter and there's like a hundred deer in the field or something right right i've not seen that yet um, so I don't know if that's, you know, I'm just in a different region, but, uh, I, I do know you're, you're not at an outfitter. Exactly. I'm not at an outfitter. <laughs> this is uh, this is public land and this is not the Milk River area, but, uh, I do know that there are, one of the other things I did is I, I have been doing some research about these different areas and I did find some stuff online from people who have killed deer in this general area. There are some outfitters, um, in the general area that I kind of, from doing some snooping around, figured out that, okay, they're in this river valley or this bottom, this section, they, they're probably leasing some ground around here. So I was kind of snooping and checking out some of the deer that their clients have been killing, and that kind of gave me some confidence that this general area does have some quality deer. So um, so based on all that, I think it's a good general, general region. Um, I just need to keep on checking it out. And, you know, one night might be totally different than another. So maybe last night, you know, not all the, not as many deer were out in the fields. I might come back out tomorrow and there could be five really nice four-year-olds you know spread out so we'll see i don't know um lots of work to do over the next three weeks so that's for sure well i'll be completely honest with you i am extremely jealous it's not every day you can go on a uh you know on a drive and see whitetail mule deer elk antelope and moose so F you, Mark. <laughs> yeah, it was pretty sweet. I uh, I put together a little video from the drive last night that I'm going to post online uh, tomorrow, I think. 
Um, and at, at the end of it, I was talking about the night and I was, you know, kind of talking about, Oh, it's kind of a bummer. I didn't see as many good bucks as I was thinking. But then as I was right, as I was saying that, I'm like, you're an idiot, dude. Listen, yeah, to you. Exactly. like <laughs> you literally just saw two different moose. You saw all these other animals It was like the sun setting over the mountains. It was just like stupid, gorgeous. And I, I can't complain one bit. So even if I don't kill anything, even if I don't see one shooter buck on this trip, like it's just going to be awesome to be out enjoying that country and experiencing something new. So cannot complain one single bit about that. Right. You know, I think it's a little different on this. You know, if, if I do, or we do decide to go to, uh, Nebraska, I'm, I'm thinking I'm going to be okay with shooting even a doe on one of the, the last days. I don't know if I'm going to, because I've, I had opportunities last time to take not only a, a mule deer doe, but a whitetail doe as well. And I just, I don't know. I feel like I want to take away something from, I've never shot a mule deer before. So what's wrong with shooting a mule deer doe? You know what I mean? Oh yeah. I don't think there's anything wrong with it. Right. I think especially, you know, as a, you know, a new hunter to that area, having that first experience with a mule deer or the first time experience with an antelope or something like that, that's super reasonable. And I, I kind of feel the same way. I've, I've thought at times, you know, on my elk hunts, I just want to shoot a cow just so I can bring home some elk meat and to have experienced killing an elk and packing an elk out and all that kind of stuff. So yeah, I'm right there with you. Heck, even now on future elk hunts, I, you know, I might shoot a cow, even though I have shot a bull, you, you know, you don't get that many opportunities to do that kind of thing. Right. And, you know, that whole experience of getting one of those animals, bringing it home, eating that different type of meat, different animal, you know, it, it, it kind of adds new life to that experience and memory. You know, every, right. I don't know about you, but like every time I eat a meal of a deer I killed while I'm eating it, I'm thinking back and looking back at that hunt and that experience and stuff. So it's pretty cool to be able to bring that back from a hunt like in Nebraska or something like that and have that kind of physical attachment back to that set of experiences. Right, right. So you're you're saying you'd wait till the last day, though, or one of the last couple of days? One of the last. It just depends. A four-day hunt, you know, I don't see – we don't get an – it just depends on what I'm seeing, too. You know, if we got something uh, that we've seen – okay, oh, there's a buck that I would shoot, and it would be just about any buck um, I would shoot. I would, uh, you know, we would have it located at least then that might be different, but you know, similar to our elk hunt that we went on last year, we didn't see a lot. So there, you know, that when that opportunity, that kind of an opportunity, when that the closest elk that we had at the time was that spike, I would, I would have shot it in a heartbeat. Yeah. And I, I wouldn't blame you one bit. Would you shoot a young buck in Nebraska? Like if there's like a little six pointer. Or some some little year and a half old. You've never shot a mule deer before. Would you shoot a young buck in that situation? I probably would, to be honest with you. I mean, I got the 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 good thing about hunting is, and I'm starting to learn this, uh, kind of, you know, especially when you're taking western trips, you got to start somewhere. And I don't have a starting point yet for western trips, so why not start with a, a doe or a young buck, and then the next year you go out there, you aim for something a little older or another doe, you know, uh, cause there is really, there's no problem with taking a doe out of the herd. If you know, it's not all about antlers. Oh. So if you're, you know, you want to go out there and you want to try to shoot a buck and then for some reason that buck doesn't show up last couple days, if something's standing broadside within your shooting range, 
it's almost like I would feel guilty for not for for spending that money on nothing. Although there is an experience that goes along with that. I so you know like our like our elk hunt again. We spent a, a lot of time in the tent, but it was an experience <laughs> that. I will never forget. Dude, there's, and... there's some great stories that we still have from that trip. <laughs> <laughs> I, it's funny. I was in, you know, I was in Jackson hole this past month and there was a number of different times where I was like, Kylie, me and Dan came here after his tent collapsed or Kylie, <laughs> you should have been there for this thing that went. <laughs> we spent uh, an hour and a half in a laundromat drying out clothes that were, that were wet. <laughs> yep. I, I pointed it. We drove by that. We stopped at that grocery store or I spent $600 uh, at on a $400 tent. <laughs> we, that's what I was going to bring up next. We went to that store again. I was like, oh, this is where Dan got swindled into buying a super expensive tent. <laughs> oh, man. Yes, there's definitely something to be said for Hunt, even if you don't bring anything home. Right. Ah, well, my friend, we are uh, we're kind of time-constrained this week because of my recording setup here. So. Right. We're going to have a shorter episode, but um, it's kind of funny. We kind of ended up on a topic that I actually was considering having us talk about the whole episode today, but maybe we can try to do another one. It was this whole this idea of like our evolution as a hunter. Yeah. You know how like we all have to start somewhere, and then you slowly progress. At least I think that that is something that – I think that's a good way for hunters to go through their hunting progression. And I worry that – you know, and we've talked about this a number of times before, but you know, with the way that things are in the media and stuff – I think a lot of new hunters come into it thinking they have to be shooting a big old six-year-old 170-inch buck or whatever because they see it on TV. And um, I think some people are getting these false expectations. So I thought one of these weeks we could just go through in-depth yours and my evolution as a hunter and kind of talk about how we got started and the struggles we had as we slowly took these steps along the way to get to the point that we are now. That's right. Do you think that's a good one for a future episode? I think that's a, a great episode. It's something that people struggle with all the time. It, you know, it's one of those to shoot or not to shoot. That is the question. Yeah. And I want you to I want you to do some more thinking about your own to shoot or not to shoot. We talked yeah. about like a month ago. People, I've had some people, you know, commenting on that and stuff on that blog post that we did, um, or the the Facebook post of that episode. There was a lot of comments, and I think people are going to be very interested to hear what you. What you finally decide for this year, what you're going to be targeting in Iowa and stuff. So uh, I'm curious to hear where you're going to end up with that too. Yeah. Uh, don't you don't yeah. need you don't need to tell us now. But yeah, no, we'll wait for the <laughs> we'll next. Wait. We'll wait for the next episode of Wired to Hunt. And heck, I mean, have you decided what you're going to do, or are you still in the process yeah, of yeah. figuring these things out? It's always it's always thinking. I yeah. mean, you're always thinking about it because you know, obviously, right now I'm gonna I'm gonna go check my trail cameras, and I'm fairly confident that I'm gonna have, uh, a, you know, three deer, at least three deer over on some of my farms over four years old, probably even more in the five, six, seven year olds that are gonna be, you know. Over 150, 160. There's going to be one, obviously, already. That's going to probably be close to 170. And I haven't even checked my trail cameras this year, so I'm I'm just going off historic data. So it's hard for me to. And then the season gets here, and you always got that in the back of your head. You know, they don't get that big from they don't get that big from shooting. You know, shooting them two or three years earlier. You know what I mean? Very true. But at the same time. If you pass on every three or four year old, you don't shoot a whole lot. So there's that constant what's the right what's the right move? I don't know. There's no yeah. there's no clear answer. 
and then you slam a couple does and that fills the bloodlust for a while. If you want, <laughs> you know, that fills the freezer, fills the you, freezer. Know, you, you get to kill something and that in a way that's what hunting is. You kill something and it, it's satisfying. Not only you get to kill something, your, you know, your archery is on point. I killed something with a bow and arrow and, uh, you get food out of it. So, yeah, I think that's, that's, that's it right there. Fill the freezer, get some great meals. It's a, it's an interesting experience every time you do it. It's right. a, it's a, it's, I don't know about you or anyone else out there, but I feel like every time I hunt and kill an animal or a deer, it, it, it kind of changes you in some, it impacts you. I think every time you do it, it impacts you. And I think, uh, if it's gone about the right way and stuff, it's a positive change and it's a positive difference in growth, but it's one of those things, you know, it's, it's, a uh, it's quite an experience and there's, uh, Every time it happens, there's something new to be learned, I suppose. Amen. Amen. Well, with that, we've got to wrap this episode up, my friend. So thanks uh, thanks for chit-chatting with me, buddy. Yeah. I can't wait to hear more about your scouting adventures in Big Sky Country. For next week. For Until next, <laughs> until next week. Dun-dun-dun. <laughs> <laughs> so with that said, we're going to wrap up this episode, but a couple quick things before we let you go. First, if you haven't yet, please head over to iTunes and leave us a rating or review. That's a huge help. We've had well over 500 of you guys do that already over the past couple of years, and we appreciate it. So thank you in advance for doing that in the future. Also, we need to thank our partners who help make this podcast possible. And they really do. They really help us keep this show going. It's, uh, it wouldn't be here if we didn't have that support. So big thanks to Sika Gear, Trophy Ridge, Bear Archery, Redneck Blinds, Huntera Maps, Ozonics, Carbon Express, Maven Optics, and the Whitetail Institute of North America. And finally, thank you to all of you tuning in today. Thanks for uh, listening as we kind of gabbed on today about some random topics, but uh, hopefully it was still interesting. And uh, be sure to tune in again in the future as we've got some great guests for future episodes. So have a great week, a great weekend. Thanks for joining us. And until next time, stay wired to hunt. Hey, everybody knows Weber Grills. I've been using Weber Grills my whole life, and check it out. They got a pellet grill, the Weber Searwood Pellet Grill. Now, with a pellet grill, you can smoke, roast, and sear on the same grill. You can go from low and slow, okay, on smoke boost mode, or crank this thing all the way to a heat sear at 600 degrees. It's got a full, great sear zone, so you can put more food on the flame. Get fired up for your new Weber Searwood pellet grill. I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase.